the uh, the advantage of being a generalist is that there's always something to do. There's always some region that's being beaten up, and it, whether it's been energy recently, uh, commodities have been really beaten up. And then when they get a little bit of a run, you you have an advantage in that you're you should be positioned in them to uh, to pick those up. I think that the real reason why value investors have underperformed is there's nothing wrong necessarily with the value methodology or the. Hello and welcome to Leaders in Business and Investing. I'm your host, Paul LeFerry, and today we are joined by the famous author and investor Tobias Karlov. Tobias has written four excellent books on investing, the most recent of which is called The Acquirer's Multiple, which I highly encourage all of you to check out and read. In addition to that, he's also the founder of Acquirer Funds, an ETF focused on deep value opportunities, and of course, the famous show, The Acquirer's Podcast. Tobias, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me, Paul. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So Tobias, I have to start off by asking you something. We asked Joel Greenblatt not too long ago. We asked Joel, considering where we are in the market today, what are his thoughts on value? And what he said was his famous quote, value is not dead, it's simply sleeping. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. And where do you see value today? Well, value's underperformed uh, depending on how you measure it. So if you take the academic approach, which is price to book, it's underperformed for 10 to 15 years, which is extraordinary. We've got data going back 200 years. It's the longest, deepest underperformance in that, um, in that time period. The underperformance of value has tended to coincide with booms in the stock market and often technological booms. So the, the one that began 200, the, the uh, in the data that we have, the one furthest back is about 1825, which is the introduction of steamships. Wow. And then there was another information technology revolution in, 18, in the 1840s when we introduced the, uh, the telegraph. And uh, that led to another sell-off. You know, when we're going back that far, we're looking at price to dividend in incomplete data. So it's imperfect, but the phenomenon or whatever it is, that recurs is is pretty plainly when the market gets bullish and when it runs up a lot, value tends to underperform. And the reasons I think for that are pretty intuitive, pretty easy to understand. When you're a value investor, you're looking uh, conservatively at fundamentals and you're trying to pay as little as you possibly can for a, f a future uh, stream of cash flows and you're trying to maximize your cash flows. And so if you're um, in one of these markets like this, where there's a lot of um, stock price appreciation in whatever the hot sector might be, technology, as it sometimes is, um, it's not always, sometimes it's financial innovation too. When you're in that, uh, that hot sector, just definitionally values not, not participating. So the, the, the definition of value though has changed over time. It's where it might've previously been price to book value it's the academic favorite. And there are good reasons why that metric is a good metric, but it's, it's clearly been the one that's performed worst. And there are changes in accounting, changes in the nature of business in the sense that they're not so asset intensive now that we're 
previously it might have been an ironworks was the technology of the day that's no longer the case it's information technology which is asset light and it has a, a an unusual accounting treatment which is that um well if you if you take a tech company most of their uh the, the, the website, the technology that they're building is expensed. It's just run through the income statement as it's constructed and it's not reflected as an asset on the balance sheet. So you're not capturing that value. And then a lot of the salaries and so forth, the, the compensation paid to employees tends to be heavily weighted towards options and equity, which again, uh, isn't properly accounted for in the financial statement. So it's, a, it's an unusual period where accounting is probably failing us a little bit the definition of uh value has changed and so the the metrics that i favor are flow type metrics so price to cash flow price to earnings or of course price the the acquirer's multiple which is a which is operating income uh looking at scaling that to the enterprise value which is market capitalization and then adjusting for cash or debt or other debt like instruments so preferred stock or minority interests or other things of that nature so that that again is sort of not so much a measure of value but the, the price ratios that give you an indication how much you're paying really the measure of value is um, what you expect to take out of this business from here until perpetuity right. the higher growth businesses in a period like this often look more attractive and it might be that we've got very low interest rates and there hasn't been much inflation perhaps there's been deflation for the last decade or so uh, and when you when you look at um, when you look at high growth in in any of those metrics you can rapidly get a, an intrinsic value that's much much higher than the one that you're paying for uh, that you're paying now and the lower growth stuff is a little bit disadvantaged in that so there are a variety of reasons some of them are warranted in the sense that uh, value has probably been attracted to slower growing stuff just by virtue of the way that value investors tend to be more conservative growth has tended to fall apart in the past although it does seem that we may have entered into a new era where the very biggest companies amazon on a hundred billion dollar base grew itself 48 percent over the last 12 months which is just an extraordinary rate of growth on an extraordinarily large business google to apple facebook all these very big companies are able to sustain very high rates of growth at scale which is a new phenomenon and it's possible that value needs to adjust a little bit to capture those things. But as a proposition, is value going to work in the future? I think so. It's just that probably the definition of value has to adjust a little bit to reflect the reality that we see in the market now. Right, exactly. And another very prominent individual that we were speaking with recently, Tobias, is the legendary professor from Columbia University, Mr. Bruce Greenbold. And when we asked Mr. Greenbold, how can a value investor truly outperform the market today? He went back to some of his old teachings where he said essentially, a value investor really needs to focus on a particular area of the market, whether a particular asset class or geography, that they have a clear and distinctive advantage, perhaps a market or asset class that's fragmented and dislocated, which Wall Street doesn't understand. So from your own experience, Tobias, what areas of the market do you see present that kind of opportunity today? I don't know if that's exactly true. I don't, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with being a generalist value investor. And I think that the problem with anybody who gets an industry focus is that industries go in and out of favor. When industries get cheap, that's a great time to be a value investor in that industry, even though it's going to be hard 
to be a value investor in that industry because your performance will look terrible relative to a general benchmark like the S&P 500 or whatever your general benchmark should be. The, uh, the advantage of being a generalist is that there's always something to do. There's always some region that's being beaten up and whether it's been energy recently, uh, commodities have been really beaten up. And then when they get a little bit of a run, you, you have an advantage in that you're, you should be positioned in them to, uh, to pick those up. I think that the real reason why value investors have underperformed is there's nothing wrong necessarily with the value methodology or the, so Greenwald, you know, Greenwald had that first book, which is fantastic from Graham to Buffett and beyond. And he says in that first book that he got his definition of growth. So you remember, you'll recall that he has in that book, the three definitions of growth or, or valuation rather, he's got the, the liquidation value, which is based on uh, Graham's famous net liquidation or net current asset value. And then he has the earnings power, which is what we might, that, that could be just using a simple ratio to work out where the, uh, what the earnings of the business warrant right now as a valuation. And then there's this growth valuation, which tends to be the, um, the, the least concrete, but potentially the most rewarding if you can get that portion right. And he revisited it in his updated version of the book. And in the updated version, he says that he looks at, uh, there's, a, there's a, a shareholder yield component, which is a dividend buyback, net buyback. So, you know, taking account of any share issuance and so on. And that, that's one portion of your value of your expected return that you can be reasonably, you can rely on that to some extent, depending on what the underlying nature of the business is, but it's more reliable. And then there's another portion, which he describes as active growth. And that's the, the portion of your earnings, cash flow, whatever, however you want to define it, that you reinvest in the business rather than paying out as the, as the yield. And then the rate of return on incremental capital investor that you expect to, to, to receive. So what there's, you, you could apply that, uh, you could apply that, it could be completely agnostic to the outcome. So just taking whatever the implied rate of return is from, uh, from the active growth portion. And you could say, well, these, these businesses that have very high rates of growth, I'm just going to take that at face value. I'm going to plug those numbers in and then I'm going to allocate more money to those or I'm going to try to buy those type of businesses. And that has been the best strategy over the last decade that you just assume that those rates of growth can persist. The other approach is to look at those great those very high rates of growth and say what has happened in the past historically is that those rates of growth have tended to slow as these businesses get bigger and older. And it's just a, um, it's, it would previously have been an iron law of microeconomics that at some level, if you're selling cars in the States, you're going to saturate the market with your cars or selling widgets, whatever it happens to be sooner or later, you've built out a store that's reasonably close to every single person in the States. Anybody who wants to buy one of a particular income level, they've gone and they've bought their widget. And then your rate of growth beyond that is going to be some sort of replacement growth. And so your growth slows. That's not true with some of these tech businesses because they have one, you know, they have one point of contact with each of their customers. So they can spend a lot of time sort of making sure that that point of contact is uh, is exceptional. So Amazon, for example, we all basically go to amazon.com, search for what we want to have. So that's sent to us. And it seems that there's no limit or where traditionally there had been some limit to that growth. It seems that that, that doesn't exist. And so it wouldn't make sense then to have some reference. So 
Michael Moberson, a very well-known researcher in value, has published these um, tables that show what you can expect as a growth rate as you get to certain sizes and, you know, in terms of revenue and so on and how likely it is, like what's your base rate at some scale and rate of sales growth? How many companies have been able to continue on to sustain that exceptionally high rates of growth at, at scale? And the answer is very few, but more recently, there have been quite a few companies that have defied those base rates. So the, the real challenge for value investors is not so much, in my opinion, should you be concentrating in, into one industry or another one, but do you need to ignore those base rates and take those growth rates at face value and say, well, we should be accepting that very high rates of growth can persist for much, much longer for these types of businesses that are sort of independent of scale. They seem to be able to scale at will. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical, but I, I, I think that you need to have some sort of Bayesian updating to the, to this answer. And it seems that it's becoming more and more likely that that is the case. So I'm including more and more growth in my, uh, my estimates for particular types of business that do seem to benefit from these network and scale effects. Wonderful. Well, sort of what Warren Buffett says a lot, which is essentially you want to understand different types of businesses, different types of sectors so that you're not necessarily just focus on one area. So I definitely agree with that. And you mentioned tech several times, which I find very interesting. You probably saw Howard Marks' recent letter from Oak Tree Capital, where he essentially called on value investors to kind of re-envision how they look at value today and reconsider tech stocks more so than they ever had before. And we're seeing this a little bit more and more. We've seen Warren Buffett and Carl Lycan make large stakes in Apple and many other examples. So I'm just curious, in your own personal experience, are you looking more towards tech today than you have perhaps in the past? Not, 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 uh, I, I have no, I'm, I'm agnostic to where the, uh, the growth comes from. So the way that I think about it is, and I, and I wouldn't say the tech is a monolith either. Tech is, you know, Apple is a very different company to Google is a very different company to Facebook is a very different company to Amazon. It's just, it's a complete coincidence that they all sort of seem to fall under the inverted commas tech, uh, that when they're vastly different companies, Apple's a consumer gadget maker really, but it has, obviously it's got Apple TV and other, Another, there's a more of an ecosystem there, but it's nothing like Google, which is supplying, you know, Gmail and search and it, and YouTube. It has it's a different type of business. Amazon, you know, you might have thought about that as a retailer, but it's got AWS, which is an extraordinary business that seems to have come, uh, you know, out of nowhere really over the last five or so years. I I don't think so much. I, I don't. It, it's not really one here or there to me whether a company is a tech company or not. The way that I think about it is, you know, what is the rate of return that we're likely to see from this business? What are its in reinvestment opportunities over the next five or 10 years? What's the competition look like over the next five or 10 years? And then how much are we paying for that? That seems to be the big thing. I've seen uh, Marx's comments on that. Uh, I, 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 I I would have thought that the only the only thing that unites value investors is that this idea that you're trying to pay less now for something that's going to be worth more in the future. That that definition hasn't changed. How you assess that value that that's always evolving. Right. That's a that's a response to changes in the nature of 
business models and, and that's you know the internet has provided a vastly different scale and type of business these businesses that seem to be able to come into a, a um, an ecosystem and extract a lot of the value a lot of the margin so you know the, the example that I always like is um, open table which when it first came out I think they were charging 15% on table bookings so they got 15% of the top rate of uh, of the of the cover for each table and if you look at what a restaurant makes that they, they, their net margins are about four percent so the 15 percent was they were losing money even though they were making money on a on a per table basis they just weren't making money on a net basis and so restaurants have adjusted too so you won't find all of the bookings through open table where previously they might have put all of their bookings on that that has played out in many different ways in many different industries and you know google takes a uh, Google and Facebook have uh, a, basically a, a toll on anybody trying to advertise on the internet. It's just not possible to advertise without paying either of those two some amount of money to do that. So I think that the the focus is um, still on looking at the return that you're likely to get from the business. Mm-hmm. We, we can grow this business into the future and we can see today if we pay x amount of money and we're going to get x plus whatever in the future discounted back to today does that provide us with a sufficient rate of return to give us a margin of safety for the nature of this business if yes then proceed if no then pass and that's always been the case that's that 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 decision tree hasn't changed it's just that the bits inside of it are moving I say this as someone who has been t- probably too conservative and unwilling to pay up for growth, but I'm, I'm still, I still think that all of Warren Buffett's rules are very good ones. I don't think that you can, I, I think that you can pretty effectively apply Buffett's precepts in a different context and still do quite well. And I would regard that as value investing. It's not the traditional Graham liquidation value investing, and it might not even meet the uh, Bruce Greenwald sort of earnings power value. There might not be much that gets over that level because the, the the challenge has been that these tech companies are eating into the profitability of many other businesses. So that's a concern. You have to be, you have to find something that has a genuine moat. That's always been the case. There's always been competition and businesses always evolved. So I don't think that much has to change. It's just that we have to be, it's just become a little bit more difficult and the market's very expensive. So there are fewer opportunities around. Yeah, those are tough modes to deal with. And, um, you know, Tobias, I have to ask you this. As someone who has perhaps the most popular show on Wall Street, how has that whole experience been like speaking to some of the best investors in the country, if not the world? And how has that helped complement your own business, the ETF? Yeah, it's been been, uh, a great gift to be able to spend an hour talking to some really great investors over the last few years because you know i'm i'm open to new ways of doing things so i'd love to talk to guys who are particularly younger guys who who have um come into the market more recently and have have a different approach to valuation which is much more uh leaning much more towards these things accepting that growth may be uh sustainable for longer at, at, at scale where previously you know, you might have thought it was very, very unlikely for a, a company on the scale of Google or Amazon uh, or Facebook to continue growing at those rates. I mean, Facebook is a pretty good example because there, Facebook's not the first social network, of course. There have been others and they've been supplanted by Facebook. 
And I think that Instagram probably would have overtaken, maybe not. You don't get to, you don't get to run the counterfactual. Maybe Facebook would have adjusted, but Facebook buys Instagram. And now we have TikTok popping up. And so I think that there's a lot of attention drift from Facebook to Instagram and then Instagram to TikTok. And I think that that's largely a result of the new generation doesn't want to be on the same social platform as their forebears or as their parents or even their older older siblings. And so I, I can see why those things happen. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've been able to take advantage of some of those uh, social networks, Twitter, for example, which has been, uh, which has been great for my business. So I, I enjoy talking to those guys. It's been great um, to learn from them. It's great talking to the older guys too, who've been around for a long time because they say, you know, this too shall pass that very right. famous line from Graham. It's not uncommon for value to underperform. It happens pretty regularly. And at some stage, I think there is a return to value. And I, when I, when I look at the, the rates that we're paying for some of these growthier businesses that really have no, have not proven that they can earn money, they, they're, the idea is that they're all land and expand. They're going to spend money to become dominant in a niche. And at that point, they'll then earn the super economic profits that will justify all of the investment to this point. For many of them, um, I think that if you if you plug in the assumptions that they're basing their, uh, their, their valuations on, I think that you find that they sort of, that the math, you get these, it refs out. You don't get, you're not going to get the answer that, that you want for many of them. I think there's an assumption they all do go on to become Amazon or Facebook or Google when, you know, in reality, it's very unlikely that that's going to be the case. Right. Well, you know, um, quite interesting enough, I was speaking with Anthony Scaramucci recently. And one of the things I like what he says quite often is sometimes he forgets whether or not he's in finance or in media, just because media today, whether you're in podcast, television or radio, is so complementary to our business, especially when we're doing business development, marketing, and sales. So it's a blessing to have a platform like this. And um, I could personally tell you throughout the years, listening to your podcast has been instrumental to my own career. And I'm sure to many, so many listening today. Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, moving forward uh, to, to your investment strategy for an audience to bias that may not already be familiar, can you please tell us a little bit about the acquirer's multiple and how that works? So the acquirer's multiple is a website that uh, and, a, and, a, and a ratio that came out of some research that I did. So I teamed up with uh, uh, Wes Gray, who was doing his PhD at the Booth School of Business, and we went and found every bit of academic and industry research that we could find on fundamental value investment, on um, assessing credit quality, business quality, and we, you know, some of those ideas have been around, some of the, the studies that we looked at have been around for 70 years. So, and that, like that Altman Z score, which is a, which is a measure of um, bankruptcy risk for a manufacturing firm, it was originally, and they did a, uh, a linear regression of various factors that they identified, or Altman did this linear regression of these various factors that he'd identified, and then attached a coefficient to each one of these uh, factors that determined the likelihood that a company got into financial distress or bankruptcy. 
yeah, is that appropriate for a non-manufacturing company? Well, they, they've developed a new one for non-manufacturing companies. Do, do those continue to apply today? Is there any reason why you should apply these odd coefficients to each of the variables that, that it identifies? So what we found is that in many instances, um, these are pretty good metrics, but they do tend to go in and out of favor. So the, the more famous one is the, the accrual score where Anytime there's a there's a differential between earnings and cash flows, you have to accrue an asset under double entry bookkeeping. And it, it, when you when you accrue those assets over time, they should balance out. You should have a, a some sort of relationship between your earnings and your cash flows. And to the extent that you don't, you have to accrue this asset. So if you identified companies that had these unusual accruals, they're often pretty good shorts because it indicated there was maybe some accounting chicanery going on to make them look a little bit more profitable than they really were. And the classic example of that is Enron, which was had, you know, virtually no cash flow, it was negative on a cash flow basis, but was booking all of these um, spurious gains in this profitability that was just not real. And so it became a very popular metric. And as a result, it stopped being so effective as an identifier of good short candidates. But it's come back into it's become more effective as that you know, the paper was popular for a while and then it went away and it's become it started working again it's a pretty good way of identifying um, these ideas so the way that I the way that I approach it is I, I take all of these um, it's just as a, as a as a plain old value investor how would you apply these rules at idiosyncratically to each individual company and you would use these things what does the are there unusual accruals in this business that make us wonder whether they are booking profitability? appropriately or whether they're, um, they're, they're making something up. Is there some financial distress risk here? Should we be concerned about that? How good is this business? Are there, do they have very big margins or are they able to sustain their margins? And I think that's, if you read Buffett, uh, he will say that the margins are a very good indicator of the, the quality of the underlying business, just in terms of how sustainable are those margins, how sustainable is the return on invested capital? We applied all of those rules and put them into a model. And that model was um, discussed in a book called Quantitative Value that came out in 2012. From that, I, I just observed that there were these unusual uh, phenomena that occurred in very undervalued companies. In some cases, it's a little bit counterintuitive. And so I wrote a second book called Deep Value, which describes those um, counterintuitive phenomena. In this, and the, the, the idea that came out of that was this acquirer's multiple. And so the acquirer's multiple is just a very simple metric. It's just EBIT operating income. EBITDA works just as well. There's virtually no difference between the two, looking at it versus looking at them against enterprise value. And so that's a price ratio that just tells you really what you're paying on one side because does the business have some un, unusual debt levels? Does the business have some unusual cash at bank? Or does it have some asset that should be otherwise... Uh, able to be released from this business. And so you shouldn't regard it as something that you're having to pay for. And then looking at the operating income on the other side, which is what the company can, that management can then use to deploy, to grow the business or to do whatever with the business. It's the same metric that private equity firms and leverage buyout operators like to use to sort of work out how much they could lever up this business. Really it's the, the minimum that a financial acquirer could pay for a business and then a strategic acquirer might be able to pay more on top of that. So I like it because it's a very conservative estimate. So we use this multiple just to see uh, roughly, and there's an association between the cheaper something is on this acquirer's multiple basis, the better the performance has been historically. 
Um, and so I, I use that to identify undervalued companies. And then I've turned that in addition to all of the other metrics that I was talking about before into an ETF called the Acquirers Fund and the ticker ZIG. And that's uh, long and short. It runs to the uh, Tiger uh, global exposure. So it's about 70% exposed, 70% net long, 100% long, 30% short, has about 30 long positions and about 30 short positions. And we try to find things that are um, cheap on an acquirer's multiple basis, but also good. They've got reasonably good margins, good returns on equity, good cash flows, management's buying back stock to the extent that we can find that. And on the other hand, we try to be short things that are the reverse of that. But in addition, they've got some financial distress risk. They've got some statistical indications of fraud or some statistical indications of earnings manipulation. And they tend to be companies that have um, no momentum. And so the reason that we do that is you can find all these companies that fail on many of the other characteristics. But if, they've, if they're attached to a good story, they, they can be up 30% a year for years and years and years. So we want to avoid those things that are story stocks. So we're short things that um, we think that the market has become a little bit tired of the story. And the, the indications are on a fundamental basis that at some stage, they're going to have to raise capital either through a debt placement or through issuing equity. And we want to be short before that occurs because typically that's a catalytic event for, uh, for a drop in the share price. So the idea is that over time, the shorts protect the long book. Um, the shorts might lose money in the ordinary course, but in the event that we have some March 30, 30, 2020 type drawdown, we can be uh, protected and then take, take from the shorts, get a little bit longer, allows us to stay as long as we possibly can be in undervalued stuff. And that's, uh, that's the thesis. Excellent. And I'm just curious to know, when you were developing this ratio, were you at all inspired by Joel Greenblatt and the magic formula? Did it ever come into play when you were developing this? Absolutely. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty open about that. There's no, I, I, I uh, looked at the magic formula pretty closely. And uh, I had been working as an attorney in uh, mergers and acquisitions and doing a lot of private equity in Australia and, and in the US and San Francisco. And I just observed that um, there was this, I, I thought that there were better returns coming from things that were absolutely cheap. And then I saw some research from James Montier where he looked at uh, the components of it. The, uh, the, there's a quality metric, which is return on invested capital in the magic formula. And then the, the earnings yield as Greenblatt describes it. And I credit Greenblatt for, for he, he, he looked at the way that Warren Buffett invests then he broke that out into two very simple metrics, um, equally weighted each metric, tested that in about 12 years of data, which was all that they had in 2006 and found that it performed pretty well and published it. And, uh, and that has worked, has been a good strategy. I just looked at it and said the quality is when we, when we devolve the return. So we did this in quantitative value and I did it again in, in deep value. When we devolved the returns, we saw that the very vast majority of this, in fact, 100% plus of the returns come from the value metric and the, uh, the quality metric actually detracts from your returns a little bit, which is a little bit counterintuitive. But the reason I think is that what the uh, magic formula tends to do is it's identifying companies that are cyclical at the top of their cycle before they're, uh, they're about to go down into the downswing of their, of their business cycle. And all that the uh, removing that quality metric does is it just 
removes that error factor from the analysis. So you're not necessarily looking at things at the top of the cycle, which the market might have appropriately discounted. You're just looking at things that might have a temporary shock. They might just have been boring for a long period of time. And so I, I think that the acquirer's multiple by itself will tend to outperform the magic formula, but there will be long periods of time when it's better to be a magic formula investor than it is to be a pure value investor. And the late 1990s was one example of that. And I think we've gone through another one over the last five years or so too, where the quality metric has tended to perform better in a market like this. Excellent. Well, you know, what's very interesting, Tobias, is when my partner and I met Joel at the Benjamin Grant conference in 2019, he was kind enough to invite us to his office where we spoke with his team. And one of the questions that we posed to them was, how do they analyze risk? And what was most shocking to me was how much quantitative methods they really put into it. So, you know, from your own experience, one of the questions that a lot of value investors ask is, can quantitative means and fundamental means work together? Is that possible? Personally, I think so, right? Because gone are the days when Warren Buffett used to start with A and then work his way through Z and then stock catalog. To my knowledge, everyone uses at least a filter today. Uh, you know, if, fundamental methods can be applied quantitatively. The only I, the idea of a quantitative application of the method is simply that that you are applying it systematically, and so you, you're looking at the fundamental data that has been published and then saying from that fundamental data, can we estimate there's any number of ways that you can cut that. You could be a growth investor and apply. You could be a fundamental growth investor and do that in a quantitative fashion. And you would have done quite well over the last few years. It's not so much a question of being a fundamental investor that has failed people or being a quantitative investor that's failed people. It's just been a conservatism about growth that has been, I think, the reason that value investors have tended to underperform because it's been difficult to believe, I think, that some of these higher rates of growth were sustainable. But it turns out that they have been, and that, and that may be a fundamental change in the market. So I, I don't think there's any reason why uh, a quantitative approach can't work. I think that the the, the problem for, for value guys has been that this market has been, this market is ex unusually expensive on a variety of different metrics. And uh, the opportunities in value have been uh, just by virtue of the, of the approach that value has have tended to be in cyclical industries. So it's been a, it's been a focus on energy going as far back as 2014 or 15. There was a lot of for-profit colleges, which were very good businesses it's just that they were uh, they were essentially uh, ruled out by fiat. They were sort of litigated out of existence, hmm. uh, and that 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 hurt a lot of portfolios through that period. And then there were the um, Chinese reverse mergers, also uh, you know screened very well, but were ultimately not particularly good businesses. And so I think that you know the question about whether you buy those things or not, sometimes that's the advantage that a quantitative approach has over a discretionary investor. And the discretionary investor will look at that and say, well, that can't possibly work or they have some bias, or whatever the case may be. And so they're unwilling to believe that, that the engine of that business can continue to drive returns into the future. But it's also the other way. It, 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 there are many instances where it's the other way around where the quantitative investor will say, I'll take that bet. Whereas the discretionary investor could say, I, I, I believe that for-profit colleges won't be as good in the past or they're going to go away. You know, that's a decision that you, you, you get right or you get wrong. And a discretionary investor is just as likely to make the mistake as a, as a quantitative investor. I don't think there's any um, necessarily any 
advantage to one or the other, other than that the quantitative investor is going to be applying the same methodology. All of the, the quantitative investor has done is taken all of the ideas that's in, that are in their mind, in that black box in the mind and put it down in a concrete way on a bit of paper or in, a, in, a, in an algorithm in a computer. So the computer then will go through and sort and identify undervalued opportunities. And it's often the the things that are most this is this is very well known research. Uh, it's the things that are least appetizing to discretionary investors that tend to be the ones that surprise to the upside the most, that deliver the most performance. So I'm I'm uh, I'm agnostic as to whether you know any of these things are going to work or not work. The, you could be you could be discretionary fundamental growth investor and do quite well in the future or do quite badly. And you can be a quantitative value investor in the future and do quite well or do quite badly. It's going to depend a little bit on the formulation of your model. And it's going to depend a little bit on what factors work in the market. It may be that we go back if interest rates spike or if inflation picks up, it may just be that value starts working again. And it's not, it's not anything that value investors are doing. It's just some exogenous event that leads the, the, uh, that style to start working again. Exactly. Well, you know, to that point, they asked Charlie Munger recently, maybe you saw this in an interview, they asked Charlie Munger, what do you attribute Warren Buffett's success to the most? And he said the fact that Warren Buffett is a lifelong learner. Since the very beginning, he's been constantly learning and developing and redeveloping. And um, it seems a little bit, and what you said there is true as well. Um, Tobias, I'm also curious to know, in our own business here, we speak with a lot of large institutional investors. And what I noticed is some of the largest family offices and funded funds are really revisiting value today because they suspect that there's a market correction soon to come, whenever that might be, that's another discussion. But they're more interested in value from what I see now, perhaps in the last you know five or 10 years. Have you been seeing that as well on your side? There's been, you know, the value underperformed through to about September last year, and for whatever reason, uh, six months after the after the March 2020 low, value seemed to catch a bid, and uh, that that sort of slightly better performance has meant that value has seen flows uh, as a as an asset class. Value sort of seen a little bit more interest from institutional investors. That was a funny uh, that was a funny rally because it was a you know the, that was the, the reopening trade and the the uh, defining characteristics I think of that reopening trade were they tended to be heavier industries like airlines, uh, energy, which are asset intensive businesses that had were, were under earning for a bit because of the shutdown, and so when they came back on, uh, you know, price to book was all of a sudden a very good metric to be using just accidentally through that period. There's nothing special about price to book, and so there's been this. Um, and at the same time, that sort of coincided with a rise in the ten-year and a rise in inflation expectations. And so, I think that all of those factors together led to this explosion in in value. Now we're sort of we're almost a year um, after that event, and it's been a the, that that rally continued pretty strongly through to about March, and it's been softened softer for the last th- uh, two or three months. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't exactly know what's happening in the market. And I don't, uh, you know, I can, I can look back and I can tell you what has happened. I just don't know what's going to happen in the future. I, all I know is that when I look at 
the opportunity sets for value. They do seem to me to be an unusually high quality value opportunity set. And if we, if we apply the green world growth uh, uh, approach to value that I was discussing before, the yields across these things are extraordinary. If you're in a small and micro cap universe, the yields are around 4%. The yields in the mid to large cap seem to be about 3%, which is vastly higher than the yields in growth. So then the difference is going to be uh, the active growth portion, which is reinvestment. So when you look at the growth opportunities, they seem to me to be under earning on their equity, whereas the value opportunities seem to be out earning on their equity. And so that would suggest to me that the active growth will be, the active growth in value will be higher than the active growth in, uh, in the growth glamour portion of the market. And if you add those two things together, it seems to me that value is in a very, very good position to outperform for a long period of time. And you'll notice that in that discussion, there's no, there's no discussion of the multiple re-rating is unnecessary for the multiple to re-rate for value to vastly outperform for years and years and years here. If you get the multiple re-rating as well, and likely growth re-rates down uh, when that happens, then I think that it's going to be one of the sort of golden ages of value over the next five or 10 years. Wow. And uh, we'll, we'll have another discussion about this over the next few years. And, and hopefully I was right. Absolutely. I look forward to that. And I'm sure you will be. And uh, Tobias, before we wrap up, I just have a couple more questions for you. One of them is, I know you speak a lot about mean reversion. So can you tell our audience, what is it so important about mean reversion for them to consider in their own investment strategies? Mean reversion is just the idea that things go back to normal. And that, that, that literally means, you know, normal is the mean, but it also means things just go back to the way that they tend to be. The, the market is is very good at ferreting out things that are making super normal profits, whether they be in the short term or the long term. When they're making those short, super normal profits, they tend to get competed away. Mm -hmm. And uh, that super normal profitability tends to drop down to average. And, and it works the other way too. When there are industries that under earn, companies either go bankrupt because they can't make enough or they leave to an adjacent industry where they can, where they can do a little bit better. One of those industries where they can see the super normal profits. And so there's a period of time in an in business has tended to be cyclical where there are good periods and there are bad. And I think that when they under earn, when they, when all of that capital is drained out of an industry and uh, you know, so the oil price might pick up and then we need to go back drilling again. And so all of the, the, um, the allied industries that have been undercapitalized for a period of time have this period of super normal earning and then capital flows back in to that industry and more capacity is built and that, that leads to the profitability cycle to go back down to a more normal cycle and then probably we overinvest. And that's, that's just the nature, of, the nature of capitalism that there is this sort of uh, overinvestment and underinvestment in a cyclical fashion over time. And so what, as a value investor, uh, one of the things that I like to do is to look for these industries that have been underperforming for a period of time and are further discounted from, you know, what might be a longer run value in that industry. And so you can buy these things that as the business cycle improves, they'll out earn and then that will close the valuation gap. And so you're getting two ways of winning where you're getting the fundamental performance and the valuation gap closing. And so that's, I think that's a pretty classical explanation of the way that value works. And I, and that's true now, I think of value uh, as a, 
as an asset class or as a whole, that value has seen that uh, capital drained away from it. And so that phenomenon that you were discussing before where you see institutional allocators coming back in, I think we're in the very early days of that. And uh, it will take a long time for value to sort of uh, attract enough capital to be um, for the profitability to return back to normal. I still think that you know anything that's small companies, undervalued companies, uh, present very good opportunities right now. Amazing. Well, I look forward to that. And Tobias, for all the emerging managers, for all the young folks, for anyone that really has a question and wants to learn more from you, how can they get in touch with you and your team? So the best way to do it is just I'm on Twitter. On Gre uh, My Twitter account is Greenbacked, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. You can also send an email to Tobias at acquirersfunds.com. Uh, you can have a look at my two ETFs, uh, the Acquirers Fund, which is the mid cap, large cap, long short. The ticker is ZIG, ZIG. And the idea is that it zigs when the market zags. And then uh, I have a small and micro fund called, uh, it's the Round Till Acquirers Small and Micro Fund. And the ticker on that is DEEP, D-E-E-P. So those are the best ways to, to follow along. You can also listen to the podcast called the Acquirers Podcast. Uh, same backdrop. Same same podcast host, except I'll be asking the questions rather than answering them. Right. And guys, um, for those that might not be familiar, this is that best podcast in the industry. And Tobias, don't tell anybody, but you've been one of my favorite guests. So it's been a great time <laughs> to you on the show. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated the questions. Thank you very much. It was nice seeing you. Talk soon.